great pleasure to welcome to South African Shores for the first time, I suspect, uh, Dr. Antti Peta Yusto. Um, he flew a very long way to get here from San Francisco, but he's not from there originally. Um, I'll leave it to you to work out where he was, he's from. Uh, Dr. Peter Yisto is a very well-qualified individual. He has a PhD in finance from MIT Sloan, an MSc in engineering physics from Helsinki, University of Technology. Very checkered academic, and anyway, an impressive academic career. Um, <laughs> checkered in a positive sense. Um, and amongst others, um, assistant professor, or has been an assistant professor of finance at Yale, and also assistant professor of finance at New York University Stern School of Business. Um, from a work perspective, he's employed by BlackRock, and is a member of the Scientific Active Equities Group, which focuses on BlackRock's quantitative active equity portfolios in emerging markets. Um, he pioneered the active share metric and will be here today to talk to us today about how active is your fund manager, active share, and mutual fund performance. Antti, welcome to Cape Town. Sure, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's uh, my first time in South Africa, so I was very uh, I was thrilled to uh, get that opportunity to, uh, to come here for a visit. Uh, so I'll be talking about uh, two things today. I'll be talking about first uh, how we should quantify um, active management, and second, how uh, active management is related to fund, how how the degree of active management is related to mutual fund performance. So um, uh, my talk is uh, is based on a couple of papers that I've written on this topic. Um, there is uh, a paper that was published in the Financial Analyst Journal um, uh, at last summer, and uh, that's mostly what my talk is uh, is focusing on. There's actually some of you may have seen an earlier paper um, that was published in the Review of Financial Studies uh, back in 2009. That was the first paper where I introduced the concept, um, and uh, um, and that's. Uh, but but basically, so this was the first paper. But then uh, I wanted to update the data. We initially only had data until the end of 2003, so I wanted to include the financial crisis and kind of see if uh, if everything is still the same as it was in the earlier sample. Um, I've actually. Um, this is something, these concepts that I'll be talking to you about, you can certainly apply those outside of the mutual fund sector. You could actually apply those to any institutional managers. And uh, um, I, I know certainly of various fund consultants who are applying this to the institutional sector. I actually started doing some of my own work on this, uh, uh, applying this more broadly. Unfortunately, that basically is a project that I started right after I, or right around the time that I was moving from academia to industry. So. Um, as you might expect, uh, when I made that transition, I've been fairly busy with other projects, and uh, that's, uh, um, I guess, the nice way to put it is that it's work in progress. But uh, the progress has been a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, limited recently. But it is something that actually there's been a fair amount of interest in this that I'd, I'd like to continue that if uh, if I get a little bit of an opportunity at some point. Mm -hmm. All of these papers, uh, if you if you're interested in any more details, uh, you can just uh, Google my name. It's gonna it's going to take you to my website, my academic research website, and everything is, is available online for free download. Okay. So, um, all right, so now um, if we think about uh, mutual funds, or if we think about uh, how we should quantify active management, um, let's start by kind of thinking about a standard long-only fund, something that has a benchmark index. Now, what we can do is we can decompose that portfolio into two parts. Uh, the portfolio can be expressed as um, the benchmark index 
plus all the deviations from the benchmark index. So in some stocks, the fund is overweight relative to the index. In those stocks, you have an active long position. In other stocks, you're underweight relative to the index, and you effectively have an active short position. So, uh, for example, with the, if we take the Growth Fund of America, which uh, is the biggest mutual fund in the U.S., um, if you invested $100 in that fund, uh, what you get, what you are actually doing is, effectively, you are investing $100 in the S&P 500 index, which is the benchmark, um, and you're investing $54 in the active long positions of the fund and $54 in the active short positions of the fund. Um, so then, um, kind of a very simple metric of how active this fund is, is the size of these active positions. So 54% in the case of the Growth Fund of America. Or a little bit more formally, if we want to define, so that's kind of what I label, the, uh, label uh, active, the active share of the fund. But a little bit more formally, you can compute it, compute it by taking, you know, you take the entire uh, investment universe. Um, for each stock, you take the fund's weight in that stock minus the index weight, take the absolute value, sum up across all the stocks, and divide that by two. So that's going to give you a number that's, for long-only funds, is always going to be between zero and 100%. So zero, basically pure index fund, 100% for, or close to 100% for some extremely active funds. And Growth Fund of America, as I pointed out, has about 54% um, at the end of my sample period. Um, so, that, so that's the basic concept. Now, um, so what is it that uh, I, kind of, I do in my research uh, besides kind of introducing that concept? Um, well, I wanted to like obviously take that measure to the data and kind of see, uh, see really how active funds are. I mean, there's a, you know, what, what is active management? What does it depend on? How is it related to fund fees, fund size, and that kind of things? Um, so this is in the cross section. But I also wanted to look at the time series evolution of funds. <clears throat> so, for example, a closet indexing, is that more of an issue recently than what it was in the past? Um, that's another question that I look in, the, uh, in my research. And, uh, and then, um, naturally, I also wanted to look at fund performance, so um, whether uh, if there's some kind of relationship between, uh, between how active the funds are and what their performance is both before fees, which can give you evidence of the ability of the, of the fund managers, if they actually are able to pick outperforming stocks, and also performance after fees. In other words, from an investor's point of view, are these, you know, are these managers really adding value or uh, you know, enough to kind of offset their, uh, their costs? So these are the questions that I'm focusing on. Um, now, <clears throat> at this point, um, some of you may, may, may be thinking that uh, we already have measures of active management. In particular, tracking error uh, is the most, most common measure that people have used. So how is active share related to tracking error? Well, to see that, let's go back to this decomposition that I showed you earlier. Um, we can also look at that decomposition not just in terms of holdings, but we can look at it from, in, from the point of view of returns. So index portfolio return is equal to the index return plus the return on the active long-short positions. So tracking error or tracking error volatility is then defined as the time series standard deviation of the return on these active positions. Okay? So we got two metrics of active management then. We've got active share, which is based on the size of these active positions. And then we've got tracking error, which is based on the volatility of return on the active positions. So so, how does, so which one should we use? Um, now, it turns out that we actually need both measures because they capture somewhat different aspects of active management. Um, so to see that, let's, let me, um, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's walk through an example. 
let's say we've got 50 portfolio with 50 stocks. Um, now, the, the key question that determines how active management shows up in these two metrics is whether these 50 stocks or whether those positions have exposure to systematic sources of risk. So, for example, in, uh, if all the stocks where a fund is overweight, if all of those are technology stocks and they tend to move, you know, those stocks tend to move together, um, that, would, that would generate fairly high levels of tracking error even for fairly low levels of active share because of that correlation. Um, alternatively, you could have low, um, uh, low um, uh, tracking error even if you have high active share. So for example, let's say there's 50 industries out there in the, for example, in the US market. You've got 50 industries, you've got 20 stocks within each industry, and you've got a manager who picks just one stock out of 20 in each industry. So that's, that manager is very active within industries, picking just one stock out of 20, but if he's maintaining the same industry weights as the benchmark index, then the risk in those active positions gets largely diversified away. So you can actually end up with fairly low tracking error, despite the fact that the manager can really, with that active stock selection, has the potential to still add a lot of value with their, uh, you know, from, from, the, from the security level stock selection. So, um, so basically these measures, so that just illustrates that these really kind of emphasize a little bit different aspects of active management. So to kind of, to kind of show that a little bit more visually, we could, um, we can actually look at funds in this two-dimensional, um, in this two-dimensional space where we got tracking error on the x-axis, we got active share on the, on the y-axis. So we already kind of talked about the funds kind of taking factor bets if all of your active positions are in, a, in the same, overweights are in the same industry, underweights in the same industry, for example, or overweighting value versus growth and so on. Um, and we talked about the diversified stock picks. Now, naturally, a manager could, could combine both, so that would be a concentrated manager um, or, you know, if, if you, pure indexing is here in the corner, but, you know, among the active managers, if you're not doing much of either, so you've, you're very, very low on both tracking error and active share, uh, but <clears throat> at the same time, if you're claiming to be an active manager and you charge fairly high fees for active management, uh, that would put you in, you know, then the appropriate label would be a closet indexer. Now, uh, what about in specific funds in each of these categories? Well, we certainly do have examples in each category. Um, so I just picked a few, no a few funds at the end of my sample. Um, and in particular, uh, the gro Growth Fund of America, which is, again, the biggest equity mutual fund in the US uh, that I mentioned earlier as an example, that actually turns out to be one of the, you know, one of the closet indexer funds uh, um, in, it, uh, in, in the sample. So um, now just to kind of beat up a little bit more on that uh, biggest fund out there, um, uh, this, is, um, um, this is the evolution of, uh, of, active, of the fund's active share from the, uh, from the early 80s to the end of the sample, end of 2009. So, um, and I, I, by the way, I should also point out that the fund actually did very well over some, there are some years when the fund actually did very well. Um, namely, 98 to 2000. There's a very, uh, very good performance period. Um, but what we see is the fund's active share has basically declined very steadily over time. So what happened? You know, why did the fund's active share go from almost you know, over 90% to you know, barely above, over 50% um, over, over time? 
Well, one possible, I mean, of course, it's impossible to know exactly what the managers were thinking, but certainly one thing that coincided with this big decline in active share was um, the fund's assets. So the fund's assets actually just increased dr very dramatically, um, and that actually followed the successful returns, you know, high returns that the fund experienced over here. The fund's assets grew astronomically to like about 200 billion US dollars uh, right before the crisis. And then even with the crisis, they, even a post-crisis, they still kind of stayed at about a $140 billion uh, level. So in other words, uh, there are tons of inflows, and uh, that's, that certainly at least coincided with this and kind of suggests that perhaps the managers were considering, perhaps they were thinking that, uh, that their fund was getting a little bit too unwieldy for, uh, you know, it's getting such a, so massive that it was kind of hard to move it around uh, at a rapid rate. Um, so, um, so that's, uh, that's kind of what, that's what seems to have happened with the Growth Fund of America. Now, just to take another example, so this is the fund that used to be the biggest fund, uh, biggest equity mutual fund in the U.S. before Growth Fund of America. So this is Fidelity Magellan. Again, a fund that had really good performance record uh, for, a long, for a long time, initially run by uh, Peter Lynch. And um, again, excellent performance. The fund's active share under Peter Lynch actually did come down towards the end of his tenure, but then he went up back up against uh, under under Jeff Vinnick, uh, under some of the subsequent managers that took over. Well, some of Jeff Vinnick's kind of bets did not work out, so we see that. Um, um, so again, he had to leave the fund in 1996. Uh, and but interestingly, what we see um, right, right around that time is that the fund's active share when Jeff Vinnick left the fund declined from almost 80% to about 40% in just two years, and then kept going down further to about 33%. So this is really, I mean, this is really a kind of a three standard deviation move. This is very, something that's, uh, that's a very conscious policy decision by the fund to become a closet indexer. And we see that the, the fund remained there for the entire tenure that Stansky ran the fund for about 10 years. Now, any ideas how this fund performed over this 10-year period? Well, it's, it's pretty much exactly what you would expect from a closet indexer. So, um, it's, you know, it didn't have disastrous performance, but it lost to the index by about 1% per year. But when that goes on for 10 years, then you're behind the index by about 10% 10 percentage points. So, um, and at the end of that 10-year period, I mean, the performance was the cumulative performance started to become, be sufficiently weak that they actually, and there was complaints about uh, closet indexing. They replaced the manager with, with someone who was actually, again, a truly active manager, kind of returned the fund to its active roots again. Anyway, so, um, so that's just kind of an illustration where I, where I applied active share to kind of look at, uh, look at um, um, a couple of case studies. Um, now, at this point, um, this is all kind of nice-to-know information, but as investors, do we really have to care about this stuff? I mean, can we still, you know, from, the, you know, from an investor's point of view, can we, can we just look at tracking error as a measure of fund, fund uh, as kind of to, get, to get, a, get an idea of how active the fund manager is? Well, the answer is no, because ex ante, either of these measures could be related to fund performance. So um, what that relationship is, that's really an empirical question, and that's obviously something that I undertake in my, in my research. Um, 
so when we actually run the tests, when we, see, when we test whether, um, whether there's some kind of a performance relationship, what we find is that uh, active share does positively predict fund performance, uh, which indicates that stock picking is really the dimension where these managers have been adding value. In contrast, tracking error does not predict fund performance. So in other words, when these all equity managers are taking, uh, taking systematic uh, risk, uh, various industry bets and, and other timing bets, uh, they're not adding value with those bets. Now, um, so then, uh, so let me give you a few more details on the, uh, uh, before I jump, jump into the specific numbers, that's just kind of a very high level overview of what the, what the results were. But let me give you, um, uh, I'll walk you through uh, some of the more detailed uh, results. Uh, but before I do that, let me just say a couple of words about how this study was conducted in the first place. Um, so I should point out that this is, by the way, um, um, so this was, this is all kind of research that I did right uh, right before uh, joining BlackRock, so it's, it's really uh, still as an academic, um, so, uh, so it hasn't been, uh, so, you know, hasn't been uh, man, it hasn't been dictated in any way by my current employer. Um, anyway, uh, so, um, so when we look at, uh, so with, with the data sources, I, I you know, had to get data on all of these mutual funds. Um, the US data is typically the one that's easiest to access, and naturally, that's the sample that I, that I uh, wanted to work with. Um, so what I did was I, I, took the, um, I took both mutual fund holdings as well as benchmark index holdings, which you need to compute active share. Um, and then I also took fund returns and index returns, which is what I need to obviously compute fund performance relative to the index, but also to compute tracking error or tracking error volatility. And to get the good estimates of tracking error, I actually used daily data um, to, get, uh, to, to get more precise numbers. Uh, the sample that I worked with was all equity um, U.S. mutual funds. It's about 2,700 funds uh, from uh, over a 30-year period from 1980 to 2009. Okay. Um, now, um, so just um, a couple of things on the general sample, what it looks like. If you look at kind of how fees vary as a function of uh, active share, so on the x-axis you've got different groups of funds with um, 90 to 100% active share, 80 to 90% active share. Um, you see that there's a little bit of a relationship. The very active funds have a little bit of a higher, higher fee than the closet indexers, but, uh, and pure indexers obviously have the lowest fees. But actually con considering how little active management you get from these funds, these funds, these active funds actually are a little bit of a bargain. Um, because basically with 30%, 30% plus active share versus close to 100% active share, the fee is still not, uh, you know, still just a tiny bit smaller uh, with the closet indexers. So what, what about if we look at, uh, if we look at the time series of funds, uh, any, any patterns that would emerge there? Well, if we look at, the, if we look at um, how the share of funds falling into each, each of these buckets varies over time, what we see is that um, over t from 1980 to, uh, to the, the end of 2009, um, the light blue area, kind of the very active fun funds with that active share of 80 to 100%, we see that, and by the way, in this, the dark blue area has 60 to 80% active share. So these are basically both kind of truly active funds. Um, what we see is that back in the 80s, pretty much all the funds were very actively managed. So um, almost all the funds were in these two categories. Um, but that actually changed around 1990 so that's kind of when, uh, of course, the, there's this green category, the pure index funds, zero to 20% active share. 
These are the ones that actually uh, that started to grow steadily. But perhaps most interestingly, you get this middle group, uh, 20 to 40 or 40 to 60 percent active share. These funds have actually become you know, very significant over time and actually accounted for about one-third of all U.S. mutual fund assets uh, at the end of the sample. Um, so what is it that could explain, perhaps what, you know, what could explain this type of uh, pattern that we see? Um, well, I wanted to relate this to a couple of, um, I wanted to test a few potential uh, explanations for that. Um, and in, in one, one explanation was market volatility. Perhaps managers are a little bit, uh, little bit more cautious when the market is very volatile. And that is what you see. So if you regress kind of the average level of active share on, um, on the mar overall market volatility as measured by the VIX index, and you take an average over the last year, a VIX over the last year versus today, active share today, um, what you see is that you get a negative relationship. So more volatility means lower active share in general. If you look at cross-sectional volatility, um, you also get a negative relationship. In fact, something that's even more significant uh, than with the market-level volatility. And I'll, I'll come back to cross-sectional volatility a little bit later. Um, also, if you look at index re overall market returns, um, what we find is that positive market returns over the last three years predict a higher active share. So managers tend to be a little bit more, more um, uh, aggressive when they're sitting on uh, capital, existing capital gains due to the market being, uh, uh, having rallied. Uh, interestingly, active returns don't really predict, uh, you know, managers, you know, active, average active returns don't really have much of a relationship here uh, with the average level of active share. But the market return does have a relationship. Um, all right, so let's, um, let's look at um, kind of the overall performance of all of these, uh, these funds. And now, uh, uh, to sh before I show you the performance results, let me just show you the categories that I used. So what I did was I, I sorted all of the funds into, uh, into these groups. So first by active sh into active share quintiles, um, and then within each active share quintile, I sorted them into tracking error quintiles. And then what I did was the low active share, low, low active share quintile, I call those funds closet indexers, except if they had a high active, if they had a high tracking error. If they, because if they did have a high tracking error, then they clearly were doing something that was different from the index. So then those funds are, uh, as I showed earlier, are kind of in the, in the factor bet category. Um, there's concentrated funds that have high tracking error and high active share, and then the more regular stock pickers have, uh, that have high active share, uh, but are not quite in the, concentrated, um, in the concentrated bucket. And everything else in the middle is kind of the moderately active funds. So these are the categories that I work with. Now, um, if you look at fund performance, let's first look at fund performance before fees. So this kind of hel helps us understand uh, what the, how much ability these managers had in their, uh, in their security selection. What we see is that across all the funds, uh, the performance relative to the benchmark index was about, before, all, before the fees, was about uh, 96 basis points per year. So these funds outperformed by about 1% per year before fees. So on average, there was some ability that they had. But interestingly, if we look across the different categories, what we see is for closet indexers, they basically, they beat the index, but, but just by a little bit. Um, in fact, that's kind of what you would expect from closet indexers. I mean, you'd basically expect them before fees to essentially just match the index. Um, 
factor bets, moderately active funds, didn't really, you know, no, no big performance there to, to speak of. Uh, but the stock pickers and the concentrated funds, they both actually had significant, uh, significant outperformance. Stock pickers, 2.6% per year. Um, concentrated funds, 1.6% per year. Okay. Um, so, uh, so this is before fees, um, which tells us about manager ability. Um, now what about, um, by the way, the four-factor alpha column is just if you take the performance relative to the benchmark index and then you, 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 kind of con you control uh, for any kind of additional exposures to value, size, uh, momentum, uh, market, and then you look at that kind of abnormal performance. But anyway, you get basically a similar picture there. Um, now what about from an investor's point of view? Um, so as investors, uh, can, we, uh, can we use these labels to kind of uh, identify the better, better performing funds? Well, it turns out that if we look at, so if we look at the net returns, uh, the average fund has actually lost to the index by about 40 basis points. And that's just, that is consistent with the findings from many other uh, papers. Um, so in other words, if you just randomly pick a fund, you're, you're going to underperform, and you'd actually be better off in a, in a cheap index fund. But across these different categories, what we see is that closet indexers lost to the index by about 1% net of fees. Um, these other categories did not do factor bets, moderately active funds. Again, uh, they also lost to the index. The concentrated funds, despite their good performance before fees, they actually did not still did not beat the index after fees because they did have a little bit, a little bit of higher fees as well as higher trading costs. Uh, but, the stock, but the kind of more diversified stock pickers, these funds actually, um, these funds actually outperformed their index by about 1.26% per year, okay? even net of fees and expenses. So as investors, if we pick these, these funds rather than the closet indexers, the performance difference would have been about 2.2% per year. By the way, the number in parentheses, these are t-statistics. So, you know, 3.5, you get something that's statistically very significant. All right, so that's kind of the, I guess, the main performance finding in my paper. And then I, what I also do is I kind of further slice and dice it uh, uh, by interacting these categories uh, with, uh, with, with other, other fund characteristics, such as fund size. We see that within the stock picker category, if you look at the smaller funds versus the bigger funds, you see that the smaller funds actually performed, uh, performed better than the bigger funds. It's, it's not a monotonic relationship, but at least the smallest funds have, you know, did a little bit better. By the way, the, the tiny funds below 10 million were cut out. I, I cut all of those out. But, um, but I mean, obviously these are still, for institutional investors, many of these may still be too, too small funds to invest in. For closet indexers, fund size really doesn't matter. Its performance is equally bad uh, regardless. Now, what about uh, prior one-year returns? Um, so can you use last year's return to predict this year's return? Turns out for stock pickers, um, you get um, uh, the, the, the last, year's, uh, last year's winners uh, continue to do well the following year. So they actually, uh, they actually out, continue to outperform by about 3%. Uh, whereas last year's losers just barely matched the index return, net of fees. Um, and you know, for concentrated funds, we actually get a very strong performance relationship between last year's performance and the subsequent year's performance. I should kind of warn you, though, that this is a smaller sample, so it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, 
there's a little bit more noise in this number than in the stock thickers number, but at least, uh, uh, but it still, uh, still is uh, fairly significant. Closet indexers, again, past performance doesn't matter. It's basically, uh, you're still uh, likely to do more or less equally badly. Um, now, um, uh, if you control for price momentum, you still get some of this pattern. Uh, you know, it's a little bit weaker, but uh, you get still a little bit that a little bit of that performance persistence pattern. Now, uh, one thing that people have pointed out um, after a some of the people who read the first paper was that, on average, if you look if you compute funds active share and do this comparison, and you try to find a you know high active share funds. Uh, they tend to be, in the U.S. market, they tend to be, there's many more small cap funds in that category than there are large cap funds. So on average, on average large cap funds have a lower active share. Um, so I wanted to run this test separately for small caps, large caps, and mid caps, just to make sure that, you know, this is not driven by some kind of a performance, some kind of a difference between, uh, you know, the, uh, the composition of the funds in each of these buckets. And... Uh, so if you run a regression of this year's performance based on all these variables at the end of last year, um, what you'll see is that active share alone, so the baseline result is that it predicts fund returns next year uh, with a statist statistical and economic significance. Uh, but also, if you look at active share separately within large caps, mid caps, and small caps, you get you know, similar kind of coefficients when you run that regression. So you actually still, so this effect exists within these uh, uh, subcategories as well. I mean, there's also another approach that I used this kind of doing the same kind of bucket level uh, divisions, but doing, div deciding the bucket cutoffs separately for large cap, small cap, and mid cap, and you still get comparable results. So that's not really what's uh, driving the uh, results. Um, okay, uh, another thing that I wanted to look at was um, if we can identify better kind of performance periods for stock pickers, and we can we identify stock pickers markets, um, especially if you read, uh, you know, the financial press. I mean, there's uh, there's um, people point out that, for example, correlations uh, may may be related to fund performance. Uh, so at a time when correlations across stocks are low, uh, perhaps this is a better time for for. <clears throat> Um, for uh, those fund, fund managers engaged in security selection. Um, and uh, and actually, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a thing that I wanted to test. And also, same thing with cross-sectional volatility. Cross-sectional volatility, the way, I, um, the way I defined it was the definition that Russell and Parametric use for their cross-sectional volatility index, which is, in a given month, you look at all the stock returns, you compute the standard deviation of all of those, or the standard deviation of the stock returns that month across your entire universe of stocks. And that, that number, that standard deviation number is your cross-sectional cross -sectional dispersion or cross-sectional volatility. So it's really a, an indication of like, you know, do the, did these stocks all move together that month or was there significant uh, dispersion among the performance of one stock versus another stock? So it kind of captures similar things to the cross-sectional to, to a cross-sectional correlation. It's not quite identical, but um, uh, but it, it kind of so it's certainly related. Um, and the rationale was maybe there's some uh, time periods when all the investors focus on macro news. There's some latest uh, macroeconomic policy announcements or some uh, some. Uh, international crisis or the global financial crisis, whatever it may be, driving returns. 
perhaps those are kind of bad, those are kind of bad times uh, for stock pickers. So I wanted to run that uh, test, and what I find is that cross-sectional volatility does predict returns on the stock pickers. So you get, a, you know, you get a, something that coefficient that's statistically significant. What this tells you is that coefficient is about 0.1, so if you get one percentage point increase in cross-sectional volatility, on average, the stock picker performance is, is improved by 10 basis points. So, you know, there's some, so it's, you know, one percentage point increase is not gonna have a huge impact, but if you get, let's say you get like a five percentage point increase, then it actually becomes a more meaningful uh, number. Um, I ran the same test for the correlation, um, correlation between stocks, and actually that turns out not to be significant. In my paper, I kind of talk a little bit more about the differences between the two measures and why it's actually different to use the correlation, you know, what, what it captures and what the cross-sectional volatility captures. But this is the measure that's actually related uh, to, to future performance. If, in case you're interested, you know, where that number is now, uh, right now cross-sectional volatility is historically at a fairly low, low value. We're at about 7%, 7 percent um, in, the, in the U.S. data. I mean, obviously you can compute the same metric country by country, uh, but just with U.S. data we're at about uh, at a fairly low level. Not, not quite the lowest, but... Uh, but so this is something that could be a little bit of a headwind for, um, for managers. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff going on, so I'm not saying, but, but on average, there's, there's, there's been generally a relationship between this and fund performance. All right, then uh, finally, uh, one last uh, result I wanted to show you was uh, fund performance over the financial crisis. So, um, so, many, so many different things, uh, historical patterns were reversed in the crisis, so I wanted to see what, what happened to this. Um, and so specifically, I wanted to look at the 2008 uh, and 2000, so the crisis year in, of 08 and the recovery of 09. I wanted to see how fund, funds performed. Well, over that entire sample period, the average fund net of fees lost to the index by about 50 bips. Um, closet indexers continue, lost to the index by about 83 basis points. Um, so kind of in line with their historical performance. Uh, these funds also kind of more or less in line with historical numbers. Concentrated funds actually did very poorly just because they got, they did extremely well in 09, but they got hit so badly in 08 uh, that they actually did not, uh, did not really recover from that. Um, but they kind of the more general stock picker category continued to outperform by about 1% per year. So uh, net of fees. So in general, I was actually surprised that over this kind of crisis period and the, re the immediate recovery period, the numbers were actually so close in line with, you know, what the long-term historical averages were. Um, all right, now, um, finally, about kind of potentially anyone who might be, um, um, any investors who may be interested in using this measure, um, you, know, how, you know, how can we use it? Well, naturally, you can use it as one, one tool in your arsenal. Uh, to select, um, to hopefully help us select better performing funds. Now, is this relationship that I document, is this something that I would also expect to hold in the future? Uh, the, the answer is yes, for two reasons. So number one, we know that if you want to beat the benchmark, net of fees, you, well, certainly if you want to beat the benchmark, you have to deviate from the benchmark. So that's, that, that's, that's definitely guaranteed. Um, and you, uh, especially when you are charging fees for, uh, you know, for, for charging fees, uh, um, 
you kind of, you can't just be, be deviate from the benchmark by a tiny bit. So the closet indexers are pretty much guaranteed to underperform. And the results also show that like the closet indexers underperformed in 08, in 09, and kind of over the long uh, time period. So, um, um, so that's kind of, that's pretty much guaranteed. Now what about the other end of the spectrum, the most active funds? Uh, well there we certainly don't have any guarantees one way or another. They tend to be more volatile funds. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, the, so if there is any performance uh, that comes from these funds, um, comes from mutual fund sector overall, it kind of has to, it basically has to come from the ones that are, are, are active and not the ones that are staying very close to the benchmark. Uh, now second, I say, when I say d no data mining in these results, what I mean by, uh, by that is that I didn't try like a million different measures of active management. I mean, basically took the one measure that was very simple and intuitive, and it turns out that that was, uh, that was also something that was related to fund performance. So, um, but that's, uh, I think the simplicity of the metric has, uh, is probably, has probably helped its, uh, some, some people uh, um, uh, adopt that uh, for, their, for their practices. Um, so, you know, you know, whether this is gonna exist over a long period of time, well, I mean, it's any easy rule generally tends to get arbitraged away in the market, but at the same time, there are, there are patterns that have existed for, for decades and still have continued to hold. So uh, in that sense, I wouldn't be too pessimistic about that. Um, finally, uh, when, you know, you can also, um, it, when you're selecting funds, it's nice to know how active these funds actually are, um, especially when you're paying for active management. And also, it's generally, it's, it's good if you know what type of active management your manager practices. I mean, if they're, you know, you can really, this allows you to really quantify your active management. You can do this decomposition into, you know, how much of it is stock picking versus factor bets. You don't really have to trust the manager's, uh, um, manager's um, statements. You can actually just quantify it uh, objectively, and especially if you're comp comparing across funds. If you're a fund manager yourself, you can obviously, you know, your investors may, may be interested in these numbers. Uh, so, um, so that's also something that may be helpful to, to, to be aware of and, and look at. Um, I mean, I know that, for example, at BlackRock, uh, we're, we started using this stuff for, I mean, it's for internal purposes. It's something that we compute for all of our, all of our mutual funds. Uh, and in fact, our boards, uh, mutual fund boards kind of require that. Uh, now, if you're, um, if you're interested in looking at active share data for, for funds in general, I've got, you know, my kind of re long-term research sample is something I posted online. Um, so it's, and you can download it from my website. Um, uh, if you, the problem is that that's only for historical purposes. Uh, so if you actually want to get up-to-date numbers, then you have to go to some other data provider. Morningstar does provide that data. Um, it's a little bit cumbersome to get it from Morningstar Direct, but you can do it. You can do it for a handful of funds at a time. Um, I can, if you're interested, I can talk to you later about how they allow to do this uh, you know, for, for, for a larger sample, sample period, for, for a larger number of funds. But uh, it's a little bit cumbersome, but it can be, can be done through their system. Um, so then uh, let me conclude. Um, in general, uh, active share is, uh, is something that's, uh, it's, it's a very simple measure, measures how, uh, how active your fund is. You can use it alone, or better yet, you want to use it together with tracking error to get a better picture of the active management style of a fund. Um, and then uh, when we look at, when we apply this measure to the data, we see that it is indeed, uh, it, it is something that it's kind of a separate dimension. We can't, 
explain active share with other, you know, we can't, other variables don't kind of explain that. Uh, so it's really, uh, it's really kind of an independent dimension. Um, and in, in the cross section, in the time series, and you know, we talked about the trend towards closet indexing, that's something that actually has been uh, surprisingly strong in the data. Um, and then finally, about fund performance. Uh, fund performance both before fees, um, we see that active, high active share managers, high, the active stock pickers have outperformed and have beaten their benchmarks. And also after fees, um, it actually shows that investors who are, who are investing in these funds um, uh, you know, have actually been, uh, have actually been uh, you know, the fund managers have been adding value to these investors uh, compared with uh, index funds. All right, well, on the robustness of the results, um, I did, uh, I mean, I did look at whether there's uh, some particular outliers in the data. I mean, these are, the regressions that I ran were kind of standard, uh, standard least squares regressions. Uh, also the performance, so some of the tests were based on regressions. Uh, some of the other tests were just based on average returns when you form these buckets of funds and you look at the average return. But even there, you can certainly look at, you know, was this all explained by like one fund that had an extraordinary good year, a good performance record versus another fund that had an extraordinarily bad. Um, that, that's not the case. I mean, it's, uh, if you, you know, again, looking at those outliers, I did not see anything that really um, kind of, there was not like one fund that was, uh, or one or two funds that were driving the performance. I mean, if you look at, for example, median numbers, that's kind of, uh, that is actually something I did do at, the, at some point, and it's, uh, you still get you still get the same patterns uh, uh, there. Um, regarding the cross-sectional volatility, um, it's uh, you know I'd say it's a little bit of a I'm not sure if fund managers are are you know like I'm not sure how um, how much uh, people are paying attention to this to that pattern at this point. Um, I know that I mean it's we've kind of discussed it a little bit within within BlackRock, but, uh, but again, the fundamental equity managers, I'm not sure, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if they actually are doing anything about it. Uh, um, it's, uh, I, I would see that as a, as a small headwind, but again, I, wanna, I don't want to overemphasize it. I mean, it's, uh, the explanatory power of that is still, um, you know, we're not kind of, we're a little bit below the average uh, historically, but, uh, but in levels, we're not like massively below the average. So. So, so um, in that sense, I wouldn't be. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say that it's a massive red flag for anyone. <laughs> anyone investing in active funds. Um, other asset classes. Uh, the problem. So, actually, I. Uh, a lot of people would like to see this analysis done for fixed income funds, and I would actually be very curious to do that. Um, the thing is, uh, it's just unfortunately it's just harder to get data on uh, on the holdings of the of the fixed income funds, and in particular. Then you'd have to link it to a database that uh, you know, and in, in that database that has the all the all the bonds, uh, and do that for the indices as well. It's just uh, unfortunately just a much kind of messier exercise. Uh, but in principle, you certainly can do this. I think if you did this for fixed income funds, you would probably have to aggregate all the bonds, all the issues uh, to the issuer level, and then compute the compute active share with respect to that. Uh, but um, so it's, I think it's doable, but um, but it's it's just uh, it's just unfortunately a little bit messy. I was actually having a conversation with uh, Denmark's uh, um, their financial uh, services regulator, um, and because uh, they they have like they actually require disclosure of these metrics, but only once a year, and um, 
And when, when this came, question came up, I pointed out that like in, in the US, um, if you, because you have disclosure four times a year, mandated disclosure four times a year, it's actually pretty costly to, uh, to manipulate your metric just to kind of look very active. And basically what it would happen is, let's say you wanted to increase your active share by 10 percentage points. Um, what you would then do is uh, four times a year, you'd have to like first you know, trade into the new positions. That's 10% of your portfolio. Then right after disclosure, trade back. That's another 10%. You do that four times a year. That's 80% turnover uh, purely you know, purely for this type of like, you know, window dressing type of uh, uh, reason. And 80% is the average turnover of US, US mutual funds, uh, equity mutual funds. So, so they basically have to double their turnover just to get 10 percentage point increase. Uh, you know, so, I, I, so it seems like a fairly high cost. Uh, now, if you have disclosure only once a year, then the cost is lower, then it's more, more feasible to, to engage in this kind of thing. And actually, the Danish regulators are kind of thinking of um, they're actually planning, they actually, when they realized this, they, they said they would probably move to quarterly disclosures, uh, so uh, following the U.S. example. The U.S., I, I worked with U.S. data where, uh, you know, you've got the S&P 500 universe already has 500 stocks just in a large cap space. So, um, so in the U.S., I think it's fair to say that I, I think that the exact cutoff you set is a little bit arbitrary. I mean, I said it at 60 percent. Um, but, but the point is, uh, in, such a, in, a, in a broad-based market such as the U.S., active, you know, basically what 60% means is that uh, you're picking from, from a manager's point of view, you're picking your Oliver stocks from the top 40% by, you know, by, by alpha. If you rank stocks by alpha, uh, you're picked from the top 40%. But, but you know that by basically half of the stocks are going to outperform, half of them are going to underperform. So your average alpha, of course, has to be zero. So, uh, so that's just kind of barely higher than, uh, you know, than that zero cutoff. And in, for, for an active manager, I think it's, you know, if you're a truly active manager, there's no, really no reason why you'd pick anything that you don't think, that you think actually does not have a positive alpha. So I think that, that cutoff is fair in the U.S. Uh, now for, for narrow markets, um, uh, for example, the Nordic countries uh, and also South Africa uh, falls into that category. I think the, cut, the cutoff should be lower um, because be, for, for a manager to have a very high level of active share, let's say 80 to 90 percent, essentially you would, you're just going to be holding a handful of names in your portfolio. And it's going to be, the portfolio is going to be very volatile. The tracking error is going to be, you know, very, very high. And that's actually, that may not be a product that's appropriate for investors. I mean, in principle, an investor could still take that very active fund, combine it with an index, and kind of get the desired exposure. But, um, but it's, uh, you know, a lot of investors may not kind of really have that sophistication to do kind of a good combination of those two. So, um, so in that sense, I, I, I think it's sensible in a narrow market to actually have, you know, have a little bit of a hybrid fund, something that kind of has, it basically admits that it's a little bit of a combination of index and, and, and active. Now, um, is that closet indexing? Am I then suddenly saying that closet indexing is okay? Uh, I'm definitely not saying that. Um, uh, but the difference here is uh, you should be transparent about the fact that your active share is what it is, and it is for you're, you're providing a little bit of a. You don't want the active share to be higher because that would lead to just a very, very volatile portfolio. But uh, uh, you know, if you admit that, and secondly, your, if your fees are a little bit lower to reflect the fact that you are not 
taking quite that uh, quite that aggressive active positions, um, and you're kind of part indexed. Uh, as long as there's transparency, uh, I, I don't see that to be an issue. I think the issue really comes with the current U.S. mutual funds, which basically all just say, "Okay, we're all active," and there's really no kind of uh, for an investor, it's uh, you know it's kind of hard to weed out the the low active share funds. They basically are closet indexers in, in that uh, uh, currently. Auntie, thank you very much for making the journey down to Cape Town. Fantastic yes, to engage you. with you. Hope everybody had a relatively decent day. Um, first of all, please remember those feedback forms, very valuable. Secondly, a big word of thanks to all of you for being here today, taking the time out of your work, getting your companies to support your, your time and also financially. It's fantastic to have made this happen. The next word of thanks to the ASSA team, working very significantly behind the scenes to put it all together today. Then a quick word of thanks to our sponsors, of course, um, Alan Gray, Prudential, and Coronation. And certainly without their contribution, that just wouldn't have happened. It's as simple as that. So thank you very much to our sponsors. And then lastly, just a repeat of the invite, please join us for a drink. Uh, it's this, the same place where lunch was. You found your way there and back. Um, it would be fantastic to have a nice turnout there. Thanks very much. <laughs>